0: Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our Academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research, and we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts.
1: Hello AMP listeners, my name is Antigone Vesey and I'm excited to introduce our next guests on the podcast, Dr. Leanna Blanchard and Dr. Alex Benson, who will be interviewed on their AMP presentation titled, Are We Just Paying Lip Service? Actively Addressing the Impact of Student Mental Health on Classroom and Clinical Cognitive Performance. The presentation was exceptional and after participating in it, I knew it was something our listeners would want to hear about. Before we get to the interview, let's hear a brief bio on each of them. Dr. Leanna Blanchard received her DPT from the George Washington University in 2015 and subsequently completed her orthopedic residency there at John Hopkins Hospital. Leanna is a board-certified clinical specialist in orthopedic physical therapy and was recognized as a fellow in 2018 after completing her manual therapy fellowship at University of Illinois at Chicago. She's also a certified lymphedema therapist. Leanna currently works as an assistant professor in the DPT program at North Central College and maintains her clinical practice with the Physical Therapy Academy. Dr. Alex Benson received his DPT from the University of Miami in 2015 and completed an orthopedic residency through the Virginia Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Institute in 2016. Alex became a board-certified clinical specialist in orthopedic physical therapy in 2017, and he completed the Duke University Health System Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Fellowship in 2020 and the Northwestern University Fellowship in Advanced Orthopedic Physical Therapy Practice Research and Education in 2021. In January 2023, Alex started a postdoctoral research fellowship for DPTs at Northwestern University. He practices part-time at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and mentors orthopedic residents and fellows in training. Leanna and Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us today. I'm excited to be here.
2: Uh, thank you very much. Me too.
1: I really enjoyed your presentation. I got a lot from it, and I'm so excited you both agreed to do this. So I want to just start with what inspired you to give this talk at AMT.
2: A lot of it is my personal experience. I talked about this during the presentation as well, and I I think it's important to be open about this, but I've had clinical depression um, as long as I can remember, and this has affected me in my performance at work and in educational settings. And there are certainly ways to manage that well and certainly ways to manage that not so well. So uh, we felt it was important to help others deal with this better and uh, maybe provide some strategies to To help our colleagues and you know mentees and students.
1: I appreciate you sharing that. I know that's a hard thing to share, and I think it inspires our listeners to be vulnerable and open to this conversation, which I think is so important. How did you come up with the title of this presentation? You use the word lip service, and I thought you might be able to define that a little bit for our listeners.
2: You know, lip service, in, in essence, really just means agreeing with something and advocating for something potentially, but um, not really acting on that behalf or following up in action. The name itself actually came from uh, one of our friend, Leanne and my friend, um, the late Phil Higman. He, he talked about this in a presentation when he talked about managing patients who had a lot going on, so a lot of psychosocial factors and how far do we actually go in following up you know, beyond being compassionate and, and making sure people get the right care. And, and he used the term lip service in it caught us out a little bit in an educational way, but, but it was a lot of food for thought. And it really struck me as something that uh, was important because I think as physical therapists or healthcare providers as a whole, we're really good about being compassionate. What was really important for us to bring across in this presentation as well was that next step beyond compassion, helping students, residents, fellows in training to to hold themselves accountable and be successful in their endeavors.
1: You showed us some scary statistics at the prevalence of mental health issues in grad students and DPT students specifically. Can you summarize this for our listeners so we can appreciate how prevalent this really is?
3: Yeah, of course. We identified a few articles in the literature looking at graduate student mental health in general, as well as DPT students in particular. So we looked at a study from Evans et al. in 2018 that were looking at PhD and master's level students. And of the students that were surveyed in that study, 41% identified as having moderate to severe anxiety, and 39% identified as having moderate to severe depression. In DPT students specifically, a study by Bogardus in 2021 identified that compared to age-matched peers, DPT students had statistically higher depression, anxiety, and stress scale scores. That's the DAS scale, D-A-S-S. And then lastly, we also looked at a study by Lowe in 2017 that asked clinical educators about how they felt their students were doing with regard to fitness to practice. And 61% of clinical educators had at least one student with potential fitness to practice concerns, and 51% of those were cited as being mental health related. And actually, the clinical instructors in this study mentioned that they were comfortable addressing pretty much all the potential factors related to fitness to practice, except for the mental health piece. And half of those CIs actually felt that the issues were preventable. So there's a lot of interesting information out there. But really, what I think we're seeing is that this is a pretty prevalent issue for graduate students in a variety of fields.
1: That definitely sets a precedent for us to be paying attention and for having this conversation what are some of the signs of major depressive disorder or some of the things that we might see in our students in our fellow colleagues that we could help identify?
2: Before I go into that, obviously, I want to say that we're not licensed psychologists or psychiatrists or counselors. Uh, So this is really more just to to help recognize some of those signs, but clearly not to make a diagnosis. As for these domains, uh, the first one is the obvious one that we're all familiar with Probably is the emotional component. And those are things like sadness, guilt, hopelessness, anxiety, suicidal ideation. Uh, Then there's a physical domain, fatigue, insomnia, hypersomnia, uh, psychomotor impairments even, or pain as a component as well. And then what we focused on a lot more here clearly is is the cognitive aspect. So effects on short and long-term memory, learning, attention, concentration, processing speed, and, and organization. And we've talked a lot about depression in this presentation, primarily because there's a lot of research on depression, but a lot of this goes for anxiety as well. And frankly, this all exists on the spectrum. So even things like situational stress, anxiety, stressful situations, which sounds quite a bit like grad school or fellowship training, for example, a lot of these things can have similar physiological effects that are on the same type of spectrum physiologically, but obviously not as intense. Going back to depression, a study by Zimmerman looked at diagnostic criteria and for depression there are nine of them. What they found though was that people can meet these diagnostic criteria in over 170 different ways. So clearly depression is a very heterogeneous condition, which means that one person with clinical depression could look very, very different from another. And we're familiar with this when, with things like low back pain, for example, so we can't really say that one approach fits all. One thing that really stood out to me and is just the difference between mood and cognitive function. So, there's one study by Asa by Hammer uh, that was published in 2009, and what they looked at was uh, how episodes of depression may start with that more obvious dip in mood, but how cognitive function declines at the same rate. But as mood related symptoms improve, cognitive impairments actually remain quite a bit longer. And there's an excellent uh, graph in that study that really showed this well where even after remission of mood related symptoms cognitive function can remain in, in decline or in that impaired state and people can go through relapses of the mood related symptoms and continue to keep their cognitive function down so Even when people say they feel a lot better mood-wise, they may still have these cognitive impairments and may not even be aware of this. And from my own personal experience, I haven't been aware of that myself in these times. And only reflecting back months later, I realized, oh, I really had an issue there that I just wasn't aware of at the time.
1: I think that was one part of your presentation that really stuck with me, because I've oftentimes seen people feel upset or get depressed because of how well they aren't performing. And it's nice to be able to tell that person that these two things are related and that it's not a direct reflection of them.
3: I think that kind of lends itself to the fact that being in a caring profession, we tend to really be very giving and selfless and hold ourselves to a high standard and probably are prone to a little bit of social perfectionism and often attach value to who we are as humans. To our performance, basically. So, if we have a greater performance, we think that makes us more valuable as a person or as a provider. And if we don't have a good performance, then sometimes we can internalize that and really decrease our self perceived value, which is just not healthy.
1: That's such a refreshing thing to hear because I feel that all the time. In fellowship, there's often a culture that's like, this is going to be stressful, this is going to be hard, that may not be as supportive in that way.
3: Agreed. And I think it comes down so much to what is the culture in whatever program that you're in and have you created a culture that makes it okay to talk about the hard moments and to acknowledge the hard moments as things that are hard, but not things that are reflective of your worth as a human being or your worth as a physical therapist.
1: How comfortable do you think our profession is with actually managing these challenges?
3: I think it goes back to a little bit of what I was just saying about you know what kind of environment are we in. I think that as a profession, again, we tend to allow the fact that we hold ourselves to a high standard to impact not only how we treat ourselves, but sometimes also how we treat our peers, our students, our fellows in training, our mentees. So I think that generally we're not very comfortable addressing these things head on. Because to some extent, I think we think it'll make us look weak if we deal with that. It sort of has to start from the top down and we have to create environments and cultures in our programs that make that discussion feel not scary or make it feel okay to have those hard discussions.
2: I've encountered a lot of variability in terms of how well people have handled this again just from my my own personal experience and interestingly I've had situations where people who are huge on psychosocial components and patients and you know addressing those factors then seem very uncomfortable addressing this on a more personal level with a mentee and you know again you never really know how comfortable the other person really is and you can only go by your perception but I agree I think a lot of people aren't really comfortable with addressing this but Considering how far we've come in making a point to include these things with patient care and our clinical reasoning and our our treatments, I think we should continue to push forward on making sure that we have the same approach with education.
1: I agree. I think the next question is, what should we do if we suspect that one of our students is experiencing anxiety or depression?
2: I think the best thing we can do is provide some information preemptively and creating some of this awareness and say, for example, at the beginning of DPT program or residency or fellowship is maybe having some educational information or maybe even a lecture on how stress and mental health can affect cognitive function, really providing people the resources of being aware and having just the information to be self-reflective, both as a learner and then as a, as a teacher think that can be really helpful just to create that awareness, which then makes it easier in theory at least to seek help, but then also being open to providing help as a mentor or as an instructor.
3: And I think it's worth noting too Mm -hmm. that A lot of the literature that we looked at was pre the pandemic. And I think that even since the pandemic, that has really changed the landscape of education and students or residents or fellows that were dealing with stress and anxiety and depression before are now dealing with that in the context of a completely different environment that potentially is only adding to that stress like Alex was saying, having that information upfront about what resources are available at your clinic or your institution and including them as part of orientation and including them in your syllabi and posting them in your office and you know, not making assumptions that students or residents or fellows will seek that out if they need it, but really making it obvious and available. The other big thing to think about if you notice that a student or mentee or whoever it is is potentially experiencing some anxiety or depression or other mental health-related issues that have you concerned about not just their performance but their well-being is to have a conversation with them, but to not approach it from the standpoint of you're doing X, Y, and Z. It needs to come from the standpoint of what you're noticing, trying to keep it a little bit more on the objective side so that the student has the opportunity to say, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. Let me reflect on that. And is that actually the external communication that I meant to portray? Or is there a disconnect between what's going on with me internally and what I'm portraying externally? So just not making an assumption that just because you're seeing certain behaviors means there's a mental health issue going on, but rather approaching it from that, I've noticed this behavior or I've noticed this concern and not from the you statement of the you're having this problem, you're doing this.
1: I think that's a great answer. And a lot of those students who were struggling with this during the pandemic are now thrown into the clinic where we know stress and anxiety from their first job, from trying to navigate a new system, trying to have to think faster, more efficiently because they're having more patients on their schedule. Right now, that's probably compounded. So I think this is great for everyone to hear, not just educators, but managers in clinics to recognize and support that specific generation of physical therapists.
3: Yeah, the way they are coming into PT programs and then out of PT programs in the last few years is just, it's a really different time.
1: That's very helpful to think about what we might do if we start noticing some of those signs or symptoms of a mental health concern. But what I really loved in your presentation is how you mentioned that there could be a way to be proactive in preventing this. So what kind of strategies, especially people that are listening that have some input in curriculum design, what could they reflect on and potentially implement easily in their program to help support mental health challenges?
3: I think that's a great question. And like you said, I think if you are someone that has a hand in curriculum design for your program or really any sort of hand in how you develop your course content, I think there are some things you can do. And kind of taking the wide overview first, I think it's just looking at your overall curriculum, whether that is a DPT program or a residency or fellowship, through the length of your program, how do you anticipate the levels of stress playing out throughout the year? For example, do you have at the end of the semester this really insane, crazy, stressful few weeks of exams and practicals and things like that? And if you do, is there a way that you can spread some of that out so that you're not just building and building and building to the stressful point, but rather balancing some of those stress levels? And then thinking about things like high versus low stakes assessments so that students know when they have a low stakes assessment that it's meant to be more formative and they can get feedback and they can try again. And it's okay not to be perfect on that. And then towards the end of the semester, the middle of the semester, having that summative higher stakes assessment so then they feel better prepared for it. One of the other things that we've started doing in the North Central College DPT program is using a pass, no pass framework, which, you know, won't work for every program, but it's something that we're trying. And the goal is really to decrease the emphasis on the grade and to increase the emphasis on learning for competency and learning for mastery rather than being an A physical therapist or a B physical therapist. So, The hope with that is that you may be able to reduce some of the sense of social perfectionism that our students may experience. One other thing that we're doing is a faculty coaching model. So through the coaching model, which is a little different than what you might think of as your traditional advisor model, we are hopeful to identify early any concerns. And it allows us to have a built-in mechanism to check in on students, even if everything seems fine, if we know we have that built-in checkpoint with them then hopefully that will allow us to identify any concerns earlier and to support students earlier. You both have been through fellowship. You know what it's like to receive feedback over and over and over. And sometimes that's really frustrating and it can be demoralizing if it's not presented well. So really thinking about the timing of your feedback and giving students or mentees opportunities to try again in sort of a lower stakes environment so that they can learn those skills and not just be stressed out the entire time that they're being assessed on something. And with that being said, I think we also need to Model vulnerability a little bit. I think we, as mentors or educators or CIs or managers or whatever position of authority you might be in, I think it's really helpful to acknowledge that you also go through these struggles and that you also have some sense of perfectionism if that's the case, and that you also are afraid of getting things wrong. And I think the more that we acknowledge that most of us are really feeling that way, then hopefully our students and our residents and our fellows in training are going to realize that they're not alone in that. And I know I've been talking a really long time, but I have one more really tangible thing that you can do. And that is just to include all those resources that we talked about, post them in your office, post them on hallway bulletin boards, mention them in class regularly, and then do a hallway check. As you walk up and down the hallway of your clinic or of your school, the office hallway, what vibe is being given off? Do you have an open door policy? Do you have inspiring messages posted throughout? Like, What is the culture that you're creating? What is that explicit culture that students and residents and fellows are seeing when they walk through your space?
1: I think that's a really special answer and is going to force a lot of our listeners in academia to really think about how their program is designed and what ways they could make this better. So I really appreciate you saying all of that. As Alex alluded to earlier, ultimately, we are not the profession to be managing this. So at what point should we refer and to whom should we refer to?
3: Great question. We definitely are not mental health therapists, and we need to know our own scope of practice and our own boundaries. So I think what's really important is first just knowing what your clinic or institutional policies are about how to report concerns, how to utilize campus resources, even just what are the campus resources that you have? Is it an employee assistance program? Is it a campus health or wellness center? And then maybe even just in your back pocket or in your office or your clinic having a list of local mental health providers to refer to so that if you do need to refer someone, you're not scrambling and trying to find the right person to send them to. So I think it's important to say that emergency mental health situations need to be dealt with according to your program or department or clinic policy, whatever that might be. And then non-emergency mental health situations warrant appropriate referral to a mental health counselor, a psychologist, or social worker counselor. I think the big thing to note with this, though, is that you don't want to leave the student or the colleague or the resident or the fellow in training alone to deal with that. You want to support them in the process of seeking resources. So make space for them to access resources. And that might look like just setting aside a quiet time and space for them to make a phone call or to take a phone call and then following up on if they had any success with that or not. Because like Alex was saying a little bit earlier, we can be really compassionate. But if we don't hold ourselves accountable and hold our colleagues or our students accountable, then we don't know if they actually got the support that they needed. So I think it's important to make that a collaborative process and involving the student or the resident or the fellow in training in the decision-making about how they want to handle a non-emergency mental health situation.
1: Your presentation was more of a workshop, which is what I loved because it forced me to really reflect and participate in a different way than just being lectured at. We learned a ton from you both, but I'm kind of curious if there was anything you learned from the participants.
3: Yeah, I think for me... Sort of the light bulb moment that I had during all of the discussion was that everyone really seemed to recognize that this is an issue that we're all dealing with, regardless of whether we're in a clinic or we're in an academic program or we're in a residency or fellowship program, across the board that people were acknowledging that this was an issue. But what I think was eye-opening for me was that there's still so much uncertainty and variability in how we approach these situations and handle these situations And for me, it kind of brought back that we need to be proactive rather than reactive. It feels like we're always trying to address things after they happen, and we're not putting enough effort into creating an environment where hopefully they don't happen or they're not as big of an issue.
2: Similar to my own experience, the feedback that I got from some people after the breakout or or even during some of the comments it was also that a lot of people just didn't know how much of an impact these physiological effects have. And during the presentation, we talked a little bit about those mechanisms more specifically, but I think it goes back to, again, just in making people more aware of the actual neurophysiology behind it. And, and that's where a lot of people seem to get a lot out of it as well.
1: This has been so fun. Leanna, it's always fun to interview an interviewee on the podcast. Thank you both so much for your time and not only for discussing this on the podcast, but bringing this to AMPT and continuing to be allies for mental health for the students. I think this is so, so, so important and you provided such great insight and suggestions that are tangible and easy to implement tomorrow. So I'm very, very grateful for that. I just wanted to end with maybe what is one or two key takeaways from your presentation that you'd like to tell our listeners?
3: I think for me, if we bring it back to the fact that this is a clinical podcast about manual therapy, most of us that seek out advanced training, whether that's residency or fellowship or something else, a lot of times we are doing that mostly because we want to be the best clinician that we can be or the best educator, the best researcher that we can be. And I think it's important to know that regardless of how you perform in these programs, these advanced training programs, Your worth is not directly correlated to your performance. Of course, we want you all to succeed. We all want to succeed in our programs and be the best that we can be. But I think we have to realize that mental health is a huge factor. And it's really important that you get the support that you need from people that care about you.
2: And for me, I've talked about this a few times already, but really being aware of these physiological changes in stress and clinical depression that really do impact cognitive function. And then similar to what Liana was saying, people who seek this advanced training, whether it's you know, grad school, but more so maybe even in residency and fellowship, we don't do it for money and fame. We all want to grow. We want to get better. Our baseline assumption is educators and mentors should be that people want to be there. And if their performance is not up to par, there's probably a good reason for that rather than them just being lazy. So personal experience, I've had mentors who didn't handle it so well, but I've also had excellent mentors who helped me be successful. And some of those strategies were things like in the short term, changing expectations, figuring out where I can meet those expectations at what level to what extent, and then help me still get to my goals and becoming successful. And that's really the most important piece, I would say. I
3: think Alex said it better than I ever could. It's just you
1: got to meet people where they are. This was such a great check in for me personally and professionally. So thank you both again for your time. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you again. This was really great.
0: This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, A-A-O-M-P-T. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.